you know, the best time to embrace a customer is during an escalation with the hope that you can turn their rants into raves, okay? Sometimes I wasn't successful, but I will tell you the times I engaged and doubled down with a customer during escalation, those customers are my customers even today. They call me like, hey, how are you doing? They're, they became friends for life. So when you find a way to be able to take something that's complex, and enterprise software is extremely complex, and you can simplify over and over and over and over again to make sure that people who know nothing about what you do can understand it, that's an incredible art. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, Grant sits down with Sanjay Poonin, current member of the Sneak Board of Directors and previously the Chief Operating Officer at VMware. They begin with a dive into Sanjay's path that would lead him to software development, emigrating to the United States at only 18 years old with a mere $50 in his pocket and a scholarship to study computer science at Dartmouth College. After an internship stint at Microsoft in the late 80s, Sanjay walks us through his first software engineering position at Apple and what would lead him to pursue an MBA at Harvard Business School. Immediately following his degree, Sanjay recounts his first stint into product management with the founding of Alphablocks, a business analytics platform, where he cut his teeth on everything that goes into being a founder at a small company, from product management to marketing to engineering and even sales. From there, the two discuss the shifting of responsibilities when moving into an executive role in enterprise software and the internal reflection that one must undergo to truly find motivation. They explore the growth versus fixed mindset thinking that Sanjay has embraced as an insightful influence over his career, as well as the importance of charisma when it comes to being an effective leader. Finally, the two touch on Sanjay's time at VMware, as well as the lessons and experiences that he imbibed from his many positions across various boards of directors. This episode is truly a great one, and we can't thank Sanjay enough for his time, his stories, and his candid conversation. All right, Sanjay, thank you so much for joining. Hey, Grant, uh, a pleasure to be with you. I've heard a lot about these podcast series, and it's an honor to be with you today. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. Let's dive in. Tell us a little bit about your background, like how you got into enterprise software. You've had you know, such a, you know, an amazing career. Like, tell us how it got started. Well, listen, Grant, I've got really sort of humble roots. I don't know that there was a perfectly articulated plan where, you know, it's sort of like a river that meanders. Uh, if you had told me when I was 18 about this term called enterprise software, I wouldn't have known what you're talking about. But uh, growing up in India, I'm an immigrant who came to this country. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, I liked math. I liked physics. I liked the sciences. Um, and I kind of wanted to be a, you know, an engineer of some sort. And then I remember when I first started playing with, you know, a old computer, one of those computers that you load software from a cassette tape. I mean, that's how old oh, nice. in the 1980s. I really liked to program and, you know, play games. And then, um, you know, I began to understand the basics of basics, so to speak, the computer mm. science language. 
uh, and logic and things of those kinds. So I was like, hey, you know what? I want to study computer science. And it was very clear that software was starting to become important. I'd heard about these things called PCs. We're talking now the, the mid to late 80s. And then I, um, you know, uh, was very fortunate to get a scholarship to come to the United States to study computer science at Dartmouth. Most often, people who come from India come here in their graduate programs. But I came here as an 18-year-old, uh, 50 bucks in my pocket. And I was very fortunate to just have a scholarship. So kind of my tour into this country really started with the quest to study computer science and become a software engineer. Enterprise software all happened much, much later. I just wanted to be a coder and a developer and a software engineer. And, and I was very fortunate to have a really good curriculum at Dartmouth. They had a very, they were one of the first schools to really uh, embrace personal computing. Um, you know, they encouraged every student to have a, a Mac. So I spent a little of my savings to go and buy that first Mac Plus. So there was lots of these early forms of Apple or Microsoft that were, uh, you know, prevalent at Dartmouth. And that really exposed me to some fundamental principles. And, you know, Dartmouth was also one of the first schools to uh, invent time sharing and, you know, the idea of, oh, wow. of sort of what's the popular aspects of the Internet now uh, in that day and age, you know, with just sort of a, you know, a, a mainframe computer. So many of those concepts that are today very, you know, sort of pervasive in the 90s and that I started to learn very early and I was very grateful for that foundation. Amazing. So then you came from India, got a scholarship, which, you know, like that's that's got to be a tough thing to do, I'm sure. And you got a chance to to go to school at Dartmouth. You graduated with a computer science degree, I'm assuming, and then you started your first job. And I, I think you were, were you at Apple for a little while? Is that right? Yeah. So Grant, my first job was actually at Microsoft. Between my junior and senior year, they encouraged students to, you know, I had a longer, um, I mean, it was almost nine months between my junior and senior year, and I got an internship at Microsoft. This was in, in 1990, summer of, spring, summer of 1990. I had a great time there. Microsoft, Windows 3 had just come out. Uh, I mean, the, the company only had 2,000 employees. The interns, you know, there weren't many of them, probably 50 or 100 of us, all had a party at Bill Gates' house. <laughs> so <laughs> it was like one of those things that was just phenomenal uh, just sort of see this software company really changing the world uh, through personal computing. I was a developer just like eager to learn, uh, building code and what eventually became, you know, Microsoft Exchange, but that time was called Worker Wrap. So I had a great time there. Uh, when I graduated, I ended up coming to Apple. You know, these were the two, I mean, ironically, like, you know, I wrote a blog earlier this year about my 2022 predictions. And we're talking about Apple, Microsoft today. But in 1991, we were talking about two companies, Apple and Microsoft. They were rivals of each other. That's funny, yeah. So I came here to work at Apple as a software engineer. And that was my first foray into the Silicon Valley. And knew nobody here, but I just wanted to work at Apple. I mean, these were the wilderness years of Steve Jobs. So he'd actually been fired from the company and there were other people running the company. But sort of the ghost of Steve Jobs was still around. People talked about how, you know, design principles. I'm sure we'll talk a lot about design thinking and so on. So those were things that were user-centric design. All of those things were things that just got ingrained very early into my mindset, uh, thanks to my experience at Apple for, you know, the first four years that I was here in the Silicon Valley. Cool. And then, you know, it's it's uh, it's funny, like, you know, what a, a breeding ground some companies like Apple and Microsoft can be for, you know, the next generation of talent that, you know, ob obviously you went on to many other roles after that. So it looks like you start you started the company after Apple. Is that right? 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I, I mean, just gonna back it up for a second. I yeah. didn't think of myself as like this great talent going to come to Apple. I just, I was the youngest engineer there. I just wanted to learn, and I think that's sort of one trend I would say that's really kind of done me well. Uh, I mean, you know, Carol Dweck wrote this book on growth mindset. That's really stuck with me. Which mm. is, listen, when you have a inquisitive mind, and you're trying not to be a know it all but a learn it all. Uh, you're looking for people who know more than you that you can learn from. You're asking them questions. You're like, okay, can I take you to lunch? And I mean, I was the youngest engineer on the totem pole, and there were all these incredibly smart engineers who I revered. And I wanted to understand how they thought about stuff. And they were just, they were willing to take me under their wings. I mean, you know, age, and I had no problem asking stupid questions. So I'm just grateful for those first four years for people who were willing to invest in me, uh, answer questions. And, you know, both Microsoft had that same that, that mindset. Uh, anyway, so four years into it, the project I was working on, Apple spun out that division into a company called Talogen, a joint venture that game. It wasn't going anywhere. Uh, much later on, Apple kind of dissolved all that stuff. And, mm. you know, when, when, when Steve Jobs came back, Next became that core operating system. The experience was very good. I ended up taking two years off and going to business school at Harvard, got my MBA and came back. Uh, and that's when, you know, sort of most business school students, when they come back with, I mean, I was an engineer, but they, they typically go and become management consultants or investment bankers. Sure. And I chose to come back to my roots and, and, and become one of the founding members of a company. So I didn't actually found it myself, but I was part of the founding team. Okay. Uh, building analytical applications, a company called AlphaBlocks, uh, a great, uh, you know, kind of idea of building analytical applications for the web. The internet was just starting to come out. And, uh, and this was my first kind of, you know, tenure as a product manager. Mm. And, you know, I sort of left, I mean, you still are coding a little bit as a product manager, not as actively as a sort of a C, C++ Java developer on the developer side. But I will tell you the thing that I, you know, got turned on to product management. You know, my last job at Apple slash Dalligent was, uh, was a software engineer, but I remember doing a demo of the software we were building. And I really liked doing that demo. I built the demo. I built it to be engaging. And when I did the demo, uh, a bunch of product management people came to me in the audience and said, why are you in engineering? You should be a product manager. I said, what's a product manager? Oh, you get to do these demos. I said, really? Uh, well, it can't be that complicated. But I began to realize that you know the art and science of building a product was a skill to itself. You got to talk to customers. You worked with engineers to build a product. And you didn't actually necessarily have to code. And I began to like that. So uh, my first foray coming out of business school was in product management. And of course, as a, as a founding member of a small company, you do everything. You're doing product management, yeah. product marketing, you're doing a little bit of engineering. You're doing whatever it is to take this company off the ground from zero million in revenue and zero customers to 10, 50, 100. And that was a tremendous experience for the next four years. And it sounds like that was kind of the first time you were really building what we would call today enterprise software, right? This is, you know, this is, you're selling the software alpha blocks to other, to other companies. You know, I'm guessing you're selling it as software at that point, right? Yeah, no, that's absolutely right, Grant. I mean, yeah. that was my first foray to B2B um, enterprise software, as you'd call it today. I, again, I started to now know that term, uh, software that's sold to other enterprises or to governments or so on and so forth. And I really liked analytics. I'm a data and analytics guy. That was actually my first foray also into the space of uh, data and analytics and data warehousing and business intelligence, predictive analytics, AI, all those things. In those days, we didn't use all the terms that today have become a lot more popular, but I was very interested in my thesis work at, uh, you know, both in, as an undergrad at Dartmouth and then later at Harvard was around optimization, algorithms. Mm -hmm. You know, I had done some uh, work, you know, master's work at, at Stanford in optimization and operations research. So I really liked analytics. Uh, and this was a software company focused on that area. 
uh, and we sold to businesses. So yeah, understanding what it took to both build software that was best of breed relative to competition. How do you go win a customer watching sales teams that were really good, understanding the sales cycle. Those were my, my first forays into understanding how enterprise software worked. And it was tremendous. I mean, again, when the, when the you know, you're a young kid from the block and, you know, I mean, you can come in with a little bit of an arrogance when you have a Harvard MBA to think you know it all. But, you know, you're, you know nothing about selling. I mean, you know, just because you have an MBA from an Ivy League school doesn't mean that you know how to sell software. You have to learn. And I found it tremendously, uh, you know, educational to just hang with some of the best salespeople who've had maybe 10, 20, 30 years of selling experience, learn from the scars on their back of what makes a good sale process and watch them at work. Uh, because even as a product manager, as an engineer, you're learning something you don't know, which is the art of selling and the art of marketing. And I think when you're at a startup that you have no brand relevance in the world, you ha- you don't have the, you know, Apple and Microsoft have a safety net, which is their brand. Yeah. But for an unknown company, in that case, Alphablocks or Verse Startup, when you start something, you have to create, you know, interest in your product when nobody knows who you are. And that takes a lot of work. It takes, you know, standing in trade shows and talking to hundreds of thousands. That time it was kind of like you go to trade shows and you're sitting doing demo booth duty for a whole day. Your legs are tired, but you meet a lead, you take that lead seriously. So that sort of old school style of learning how to both build a product and then sell it. And product management is often at the center of all of that is a tremendous learning experience. And I, you know, sort of the, another lesson I would share with people is if you're an engineer who wants to get close to the customer, you know, the best time to be, especially at a startup, is to ask yourself, do you have a passion for uh, dealing with customers? Are you a good presenter? I mean, there was one skill that I certainly had as a child growing up was I was a good speaker. I was a good communicator. Uh, I could give compelling present- presentations. I knew how to appeal to an audience. And you could put that skill to work in a product management job. And typically, if you're technical, okay, because your, your roots are in engineering. I'm a computer science, electrical engineer by background. I wrote code. You know, no one's going to BS you on the capabilities of the product, because in many cases, you may have built it. But often, you know, because you built it, if you can understand how to explain it in simple terms, because the vast part of the world is so complex. You know, Da Vinci has said something that always stood with me, which is, you know, uh, uh, simplicity is the greatest sophistication. Mm. So when you find a way to be able to take something that's complex, and enterprise software is extremely complex, and you can simplify it over and over and over and over again to make sure that people who know nothing about what you do uh, can understand it, that's an incredible art. Yeah, I mean, that's the... uh... I would write. I would have written a shorter letter, you know, if I had more time. Kind of concept, right? It just takes takes a lot of effort to simplify things and to really distill things down to their most valuable components. Such a great, profound line. Yeah, and you know, I mean, time is. You know, everyone's. You know, there's a reason they call it an elevator pitch, right? I'll kind of build on one of those examples you talked about. If I had more, I'd write a shorter letter. Abraham Lincoln was asked. I believe the story goes that it was. He was asked. You know, how long do you take to prepare? for a um, five-minute speech, uh, a reporter asked him. He says, it takes me five days. And the reporter was like, wow, it takes you that long? How long does it take you to prepare for a 15-minute speech? And Lincoln said, three days. Whoa, now the, the reporter's really stunned. How long does it take you to, third question, how long does it take you to prepare for a 45-minute speech? He says, I'm ready right now. <laughs> so the more long-winded you have to be, you can kind of like, you know, and you are not as tight 
so I encourage, especially now, now we're talking a little bit of moving away from the coding part of it, which is where I started my life, to the presentation aspect. I often see product managers, and often it goes all the way up to CEOs, because CEOs often are like a product manager. They're very sloppy in the way they present what they do. They haven't really thought through how to make it simple and compact. And it's like, you know, I mean, telling uh, an aspect of your product or your company is like telling a story, right? Nobody wants to listen to a boring story. Every great story has a beginning, it has an end. Once upon a time, they live happily ever after. So you have to think about the way in which you're going to present your product or your company in a way that's an incredibly compelling story, just like, you know, Tom Sawyer. I mean, we're talking about these great, uh, you know, Huckleberry Finn, whatever these great novelists that you admire. And uh, I think way too often in enterprise software, we you know, gravitate to the complex. We take courage, but we take sort of stand behind and hide behind the complexity and we don't do enough. Uh, and, you know, certainly someone like Steve Jobs was probably the best I've seen in the industry at being able to take complexity and make it so simple. He did it over and over and over again. Probably the best was the launch of the iPhone, which we can talk about. But I think that was what I learned um, in a rigorous fashion. If I take one significant experience from a no-name startup company to, you know, being a product management leader there is how do you create relevancy and simplicity for what you're doing, differentiation, all of those skills that you need uh, that you know, prepared me significantly for the bigger jobs I had later. I go back to many of those core skills. I learned that in those first four years, um, you know, working right out of business school in the trenches as an entry-level product manager at a startup that nobody knew. Yeah, and then, I mean, the other thing that's interesting is that was kind of during the first bubble, right? So, like, Netscape went public, everything was crazy. So, you know, what happened to AlphaBlocks? Yeah, great story. In fact, I would argue most of my life lessons have happened where, you know, when you look at someone like me now, you're like, oh, you must have had such a, you know, up and to the right story. Yeah. My life story is a bunch of valleys and peaks and valleys and peaks. And I've learned a lot more in the valleys of my life than, mm. and than the peaks. The peaks are nice, but quite <laughs> frankly, you know, if you hit a peak, you're probably going to hit a valley again. <laughs> it's the story of life. And my time at Apple ended because the division of Apple that I was involved in Towson was going nowhere. I decided to leave. And um, Alphablox, I mean, in fact, one of our lead partners was Netscape. I watched the implosion of Netscape. Wow. I mean, I saw some of the key reasons why Netscape was not successful. And some of it was also the kind of, you know, uh, you know what people would now say monopolistic behavior of Microsoft within an Explorer. But there were missteps and mis-executions that Netscape did. They were our key partner down the street from us in Mountain View. But Alphablox also had many missteps, and I think I reflect on that. I wasn't the CEO of the company, but I reflect on what I would have done mm. if I was the CEO of the company. And then, of course, we hit the year 2000, the end of the dot-com, 9-11. And by that point in time, I decided, like, okay, you know what? This was a good run. Uh, I want to do something different. And that's why I went to Informatica. And, you know, my life's been, for the most part, except for the last 16 years, four-year chunks. Okay. Uh, four years in one company, four years. Or so I went from Alphablox Informatica to the same space, data, analytics. I love that industry uh, and spent about four years there. Now I was in a much more advanced role. I was now running engineering and product teams as a general manager and then later on as CMO of the company. So I was in a much more of an executive role there, but I don't think I would have been ready for that, you know, had it not been for the experience I had at Alphablox. I think it was tremendously good experience to prepare me for a more executive role in Informatica. Because once you're an executive now, everything's different. I mean, people are watching you, right? As a product manager, you're not as much watch. You're not part of the executive team. You are contributing to that. But when, when 
stuff doesn't happen, you can kind of blame the executive team. You know, I'm just following their orders, so to speak. But when you are a leader, you know, there's a saying uh, I think used to be said in many of the countries that had, had kings and queens. Heavy lies the head that bears the crown. For So like for people like you and me, Grant, who are leaders of a business, it all falls on us. At the end of the day, the buck stops with us. We take responsibility as the C-level executive of a company. And that comes with a lot more onus. And I began to realize how important the sanctity and the future of my team, whether it was 50, 100, you know, a few hundred people. And that lesson stood with me all the way to much larger teams that I managed at SAP and, and VMware, the tens of thousands of people. But when you get your first team of five people, or 50 people, or 100 people, you become like a mini parent to them. Uh, you know, it's not pedantic in the sense that you're, they're literally your children because some of them might be even older than your age. But you have to think about their success like you think about your kids. Yeah. Um, you know, they have families, they have lives, they want to be motivated. They want to see someone who really has got their interests in mind rather than your own. I mean, this notion of servant leadership, I began to build that concept uh, in my own thinking at Informatica. Uh, so it was a tremendously, you know, valuable experience. There were some ups and downs in the business that we can get to if you want. But I would say the end of my Informatica tenure was actually a very abrupt one because I got fired from the company. You know, and I've talked about this publicly. One fine day, the CEO pulls me aside and says, listen, I would I'd move from an engineering job to running marketing for the company. Hmm. And I, I wouldn't say kind of a pure marketing job is my forte. I really like, I'm a product guy at heart, and I either like building product or selling product. Uh, I think the CMO role was probably not my strength, but I thought I was doing a decent job. Still kind of a, a real shock when he said, listen, you know, I want to bring somebody else to run the marketing of the company and effectively sort of sidelining me and, and, and firing. Well, they didn't use those words. I mean, it, I was doing a decent job. I kind of knew like I was, I was being ushered the door and it was very humbling. It was the first time in my career that someone's saying, Hey, I thought I was doing really well. I'm a type A person who wants to excel at everything I'm doing. I thought I was, and, and so did my peers in the company, but the CEO didn't think so. Mm. And I had to go through a little bit of humiliation to realize, you know, and that again, these are all the valleys of my life, right? You know, yeah. you think you're working at Apple, it's not working out, you leave. You're working at Alpha Blocks, the company's not going anywhere. You go to Informatica, it's going well, but then you have this. And I remember telling my friends, you know, I think the season's over and this thing, but, you know, hey, I'll, I'll bounce back up. You know, I took six months off. It was very helpful to me to kind of just, and anytime you have those breaks in life, either because you choose to have it or someone chooses it for you. I tell people, really do a self-reflection of what motivates you, you know, clean up your life if you need to, or go and help other people because in that you start to soul search. And, you know, I needed to lose some weight, get back in, in better health, help some people in my life that I could spend more time with. And ultimately that season also helped me meet the wonderful person I'm not married to. I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have met her if I'd been, but it allowed me the time to slow down mm. And um, really kind of, you know, think about what's next. Um, you know, I ended up then working at Semantic for two years, but then began for the 16 years after that, around 2004, 2005, two incredible runs I have had at SAP and VMware, which were, we can talk a lot about, because I would say most of my enterprise learning, enterprise software, were built at companies like Alphablocks and Informatica and Semantic. But most of my, I would say, you know, hard, school of hard knocks, uh, happened at SAP and VMware between you know the last sixteen years. Yeah, so let's let's dive into that because I think you know I mean let's start with SAP. You know where you 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 had you know very major roles. 
I remember being on Hacker News uh, a couple years ago, and there's like a post from a, a company called Retool, and the post says, "What is SAP?" <laughs> and like, and that was the. It's like, you know, so there's all these engineers, and it's like a very upvoted, you know, uh, article because like, like I think you know, for a lot of folks probably listening to this podcast, you know, they've heard of SAP. They don't really understand what it is, like, and you know, and why it matters, and like, you know, why it's a, you know, like a hundred billion dollar plus, you know, market cap company. And so, I mean, one, it'd be great to just like get a little context on, you know, what is SAP? Why is it? You know, what is ERP software? Why does this matter? And then, you know, and then talk a bit about like, you know, all the things you you did there and you learned there. And I think, you know, some of the that's probably where you started to develop some of those early frameworks around, you know, go to market motion and product and things. So. Yeah, let's let's dive in. I love that you're asking me what the heck is, is SAP because that's such a yeah. <laughs> relevant Gen X, Gen Y, Gen Z, whatever you call the current generation of developers. Like, why should I care? I mean, they all heard of Google, they've all heard of Facebook, yeah. but they don't know what is SAP. Uh, I mean, listen, you know, when you ba- the best way to describe what it is is when you balance your books at home, you have you know either you do it on a spreadsheet or on some web based you know, accounting software, or if you've got QuickBooks or something, you use what's called accounting software to, to, you know, to do debits and credits and balancing books. A general ledger for a big company, in essence, is that you have accounts payable, accounts reviewable, you balance your finances in a ledger. And that software, accounting software, the company that that is the king of that hill is is SAP. Mm. And they did that by, it's not like accounting software didn't exist, but in the 70s, it was done on mainframes. And they were the first to take that notion of how to build, you know, ERP stands for enterprise resource planning, you know, but it's really kind of resource planning. That's really what accounting is. And client server software. This is well before, you're talking the late 70s, early 80s, when just, you know, you had, you know, servers and potentially laptops. And they designed this, really did this well, went and focused on a couple of, of key industries like oil and gas and mm-hmm. became very quickly the household name among CFOs. Finance, financial officers for uh, systems of record for accounting. Now, fast forward way past to 2005 or so when I joined the company, these systems of record, uh, accounting systems are like a system of record where data is stored. But you want to analyze the data to detect patterns. Okay, I've done all this sales, but what product sold the best, why, when, how? That analytics software SAP was weak at. And there was a whole host of companies. Alpha Blocks was one of them, Business Objects, Hyperion, Cognos. In the 2000s, leading up to 2005, they were all building business intelligence analytics software where they took data from those systems of record of SAP and those systems of engagement were companies like you know, Business Objects and others. And I always felt, and this is what I told, I remember Shai Agassi was the president of, of uh, SAP running all products, and I met him. He was a phenomenal person. And first off, it's like, here's this German software company, an Israeli guy running it. That story in itself was amazing. It was in Palo Alto, and he was really shaking up the way uh, SAP software was being built. Uh, and when he interviewed me for the role, I said, listen, you know, I've always felt if SAP really took analytics seriously and created a systems of engagement, they would just wreck all these other companies that are trying to do it standalone because you have the data. The systems are record all SAP. You haven't just built the analytics, and he said exactly what we need to do. So... Uh, fortunately, he hired me, and and I began to build out the analytics strategy and portfolio of products of SAP one by one. You know, organically did some acquisitions, 
Uh, then we did the big one of business objects that I eventually got to run. Mm. And we built a multi-billion dollar analytics business that in the 2005 to I'd say 2010 era was one of the key reasons SAP d- uh, went from 10 billion to 20 billion. I would say during that run of 10 billion to 20 billion, half of that revenue came from the products uh, I had built or was managing. Later on, we built, um, you know, I moved a little bit more to the go-to-market side, but we built out HANA, which is a, you know, an in-memory appliance yeah. uh, that sort of came underneath the business intelligence analytics software and aggregated data in memory really fast. We took that product from zero to a billion really fast. So that entire tour of duty of really understanding the analytics stack was fantastic. I go back to, I mean, if I want to share a framework here, one of the there's two or three things I learned from Shai Agassi. I mean, he's since left SAP, you know, before I uh, I left. Um, but I would say there's two or three things that I learned from him that I would still take away as very key lessons. He would ask us if you're going to do something in a space, uh, how much better is it than the alternative? And we said, ah, it's two x. He's like, that's not enough. Mm. How do you do things ten x better than that? And that notion of ten x stayed in my head. It's the first time I heard it. Like he wasn't satisfied with just something that was fifty, uh, you know. He wanted something that was ten x better, and it allowed you to, even if it wasn't ten x, you were shooting for, uh, you know, the stars, and then you may land on the moon, so to speak, right? So often, if you shoot for only two x, you may end up with something that's just incrementally better. Sure. So then, uh, the second thing he would always ask us is, why not? Just keep asking, why not? Okay, you say oh, we can't do this. Well, why not? Just keep asking that question over and over and over and over again, because sometimes it just breaks down these barriers of artificial impossibility that sit in your head or, you know, and forces you to say, no, no, we're going to break through that wall. Why not? And then the third question he would really pose is what if, mm-hmm. okay, what if we could do something and it would always be something revolutionary. The guy was, you know, an absolute, you know, visionary thinker. And again, unconstrained in a, in a room before you're starting to write code and plan out, you should be asking these questions as a, certainly as a business leader, which was what, what I was as a business unit leader at that time, you know, and encouraging engineering teams, product teams, go to market teams. And I was very fortunate to, I mean, the SAP experience really taught me not just, you know, exercising those three questions over and over again, the business we were building, but the global presence. I mean, one thing that's so amazing about SAP, it's a German company that built an incredible presence in the US. And to be successful there, you really had, I mean, I was an Indian American. I had to go spend time in Germany. And, you know, I remember taking the Lufthansa flight from San Francisco to um, Frankfurt. I think it's 454 is the number. I even remember the number. And I had my favorite seat on that plane because I did so many flights from San Francisco to Frankfurt and then from there to Waldorf to get to know the German team in Waldorf. And it's one of those relationships that, because there's probably 20,000, 30,000 people in Waldorf, you got to get to know them in person, go, you know, have food with them and right. beer and whatever have you. And once they know and they trust you, you can really get things done, even if it's remotely, mm. you know, whether it's Bangalore or Germany or the U.S. And I really learned a lesson that even when you're working in this remote world, I mean, of course, Zoom makes a tremendous difference because doing this with video is so much different than just doing phone calls. Those days, all we had was conference calls. Yeah. But for the first few meetings with people, it makes a huge difference to, to, to be face-to-face and, and, and press the flesh and get to know them, even in engineering jobs. I mean, half of my four, eight years at SAP, I was building uh, products. And then the last four years, I moved to go-to-market role where I was selling many of those products. And then on the selling side, I had tremendous learnings, which we'll talk about. But I, I, I really loved my time at SAP. It was tremendous learning. 
Yeah, I mean, so you know, let's talk a little bit about the early years there because you know one of the most important things, I think, one of the hard things. I've, t- I've talked to a lot of different founders about this to like maintain and define, particularly as you get bigger, is to get great product and engineering velocity, right? And so, you know, but it sounds like you, you know, you built many of these products. I mean, Hana is still like a massive product at, you know, for SAP and in a, in a foundation for what they're doing. So, you know, was it the leadership? Like, you know, how did you, how did you get teams to really produce, you know, such kind of foundational game changing products? I wouldn't say that our strength was velocity. I mean, certainly some of these game changing products were, we had to build that sort of scrum agile mentality into the company, sometimes through acquisition, but certainly Hana was a good example uh, I wasn't responsible for the engineering aspect of that. My colleague Vishal Sikha and his team built that, but I was at that time responsible for the go-to-market of Hana. Okay. But I will tell you, on the other analytics products that we built, we would often acquire companies that were in an area where we're weak, you know, much. So we acquired a company named Outlooksoft that competed uh, with Hyperion and others, but they did budgeting and planning and consolidations processes for analytics way better than us. And it provided us a very nimble Excel-like experience. And none of these companies are perfect. Listen, I'm sure years later, there's things about the scalability of that solution, but the user experience was so much easier. One of the you know challenges at SAP was an extremely functional German car, but the user experience of many of our products sucked. It just was terrible. Mm-hmm. People would say, this is a beautiful, highly functional car, but hard to use. Right? The screens look terrible. I mean, could you give me kind of a Facebook, Google-like experience on top of that? So often not just sort of skinning it differently, but having software that integrated deeply with SAP, but was extremely easy to use. We acquired companies like them and allowed that speedboat to operate alongside the big aircraft carrier Mm. because it wasn't going to be just out there on its own. It got all of the benefit of being close to this mothership, but then could move fast in its own lane. Uh, You got the best of both worlds. And then we would use those engineering teams that came in put a lot of incentives to get them to stay. You wouldn't, couldn't get them to stay forever, but at least, you know, two, three, four years. So they brought some of that agility and, and sort of fast mindset. In the case of Hana, it was all done organically. And listen, that, I got to, I mean, Hasso, the chairman, was the brainchild behind driving. And remember, he had a passion for that. He had been lecturing at, uh, you know, his university, Potsdam, about in memory. And he really, with his own, I mean, this is where you got to give, I mean, there's something unique about founders that have a passion, and he's one of them. Mm-hmm. He drove with a maniacal speed, you know, capabilities that needed to be done. We moved extremely fast, and then he was hands-on in terms of its, you know, its success and feature and functions. And, and I mean, for why? Because he wanted to disrupt Oracle, the Oracle database, was often running underneath SAP. So he had a passion for that. And I would say he was certainly the kind of spiritual force behind the success of Hana. Oh, interesting. And so I, I didn't even realize, but your, your your point there is you would buy SAP's ERP system, but underneath you would have an Oracle database that was sort of uh, where all of that data was stored, right? So you would you know set up the database and then set up the SAP software to talk to that Oracle database. Yeah, I mean, think of SAP like an application. It's an application layer. The data then sits in a database. We didn't own the database often, you know, and the database was just as important because you'd set rules and logic in the database. Uh, and because we weren't a database company, most often SAP applications run on the world's greatest database. And Oracle is comfortable with that because they weren't, I mean, they now today are a lot more in the application space, but in that day and age, they needed SAP to sell a lot more Oracle databases. So in fact, there was a good partnership between the two companies. But once mm-hmm. Oracle started to get in the app space, they bought PeopleSoft and Siebel and 
SAP had to ask ourselves, do we get in the database space? And for a long time, we didn't. But once we had HANA gave us an avenue, even though we we're primarily an apps company, to have a database or a data layer that we owned that was differentiated. I mean, it was differentiated in the sense it was in memory. Mm-hmm. And with memory, you know, with RAM pricing being different, you know, flash pricing, you had a variety of doing things as an appliance. Now, this was all before the the the, the, the cloud and you know the way in which Snowflake's now doing this in in the context of a cloud based data warehouse, which is where to be the right the right way to do it. Prior to that was as a very fast in memory appliance. So, you know, it was a lot, again, and I knew very little about uh, appliances and hardware. I was very much a software guy, but to learn how to build that, often it was done with HP and Dell and, and you know, IBM, the later on Nova. It was fantastic learning experience. And for that period of time, we took that business from zero to a billion really fast, a thousand customers, um, and really got it off the ground. And those, I would say, analytics... Uh, big data. Uh, and then the third business I was very involved in running was the mobile uh, business of, of SAP, which was for me a tremendous learning and led later on to uh, the foray that I was able to to kind of start off at v- VMware with. So, I, I mean, from my perspective, you know, working for a large global software company, SAP, uh, eventually I was president there, you know, helping drive the company from 10 billion to 20 billion, which was a tremendous learning experience and getting the breadth of both an engineering job at scale and a go-to-market job at scale. I mean, you know, big companies allow you rotation. Mm. Uh, I worked for probably, you know, one of the best bosses in the world, Bill McDermott, who's now CEO of ServiceNow. I have tremendous respect for him. Sure. And he, a lot of what I learned, especially in the selling side, uh, I learned from him. But I think these opportunities, an engineer, remember I'm an engineer, a product guy, to really get a scaled experience at go-to-market happened at, at SAP and I have so much gratitude to many of the great sales leaders, chief of all Bill McDermott, that simple, I mean, I could write a case study of all of the things you want to do as a go-to-market later, uh, lesson after lesson after lesson that I took out of the, I mean, you know, McDermott University, so to speak. It was fantastic. And th- those have stayed with me to this day. Yeah. I mean, let's let's dive into a few of those because I think one one thing I love is just like when someone who you know, is building products, it then sort of goes into more of a customer facing role and has to like sort of be like, oh, I just built all that stuff and now I have to go actually sell it again, like see customers use it. You're like, okay, this is gonna get real, right? And so you kind of, you know, you're you're stuck with your baby that you that you helped create. Now you need to go take it to the world. So, you know, it, it's kind of like a it, the the right responsibility and to give someone like that, you know, a chance. So yeah, I think, you know, that's an astute observation, Rand. I remember, you know, I was a product guy and Bill invited a bunch of us product people. I know this must have been 2009 or so. It was about four years into my tenure. So, so think of me as like all the way from 1991 to 2009, like 18 years I've been a product engineering guy. Like, I mean, I've done some product management, never really on the dark side, so to speak, sales and marketing. So a bunch of us product people were presenting at Bill McDermott's, uh, you know, sales uh, leadership meeting, you know, I think it was at the end of the quarter, and I think it had been a tough quarter for us. Maybe we didn't make our numbers. I forgot what the con- context was. He lined a bunch of us product people, and then at the end of that, he pulled me aside and said, "Hey, listen, you are hands down the best person presenting your product area, mm. but you're on the wrong side of the business. You need to be on the sales side, not on the engineering side." I said, "What are you talking about?" He says, "No, come work for me." And it was clearly a recruiting pitch, but you know, I was like, "Well, you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be flying around seventy percent of the time." Sure, kind of like I mean, I always viewed sales guys they're just traveling around, you know. And when you don't make your number, you're going to be fired. I wasn't worried about being fired. I was like, "Okay, you know what? 
I mean, I didn't think that that was what I'd be good at. And I didn't want to be flying around. I had my, you know, my wife and I had a daughter and then twins were on the way. Hmm. So we had two more kids coming soon. But he was like, hey, don't worry about it. I mean, it may be 70%, maybe less, but you learn. I, but uh, you need to make a decision by this Friday. So this was, I had a conversation on Monday or Tuesday. And like by Friday, I said, I needed to tell because he was, you know, he was going to make a decision. So I called a couple of people and said, hey, listen, they said, the opportunity to learn from Bill is once in a lifetime. You should take the job. I was like, okay, fine. So I did. And I will tell you, I mean, I learned, and the first lesson is exactly what you talked about. You'd learn tremendous empathy for sales people once you get in their shoes. As a product guy, you're always like, oh, that guy can't sell. I mean, I mean, if the only the salespeople knew how to sell my product, be better. Okay, let's see how you would do it. And, and you get in that person's shoes, you realize, my goodness, it's tough. You have to make this thing you start to first off realize the flaws in the product that yeah. you built okay but then sometimes you realize hey if this thing is not competitively better than the competition even the best sales leader is not going to be able to get an intro or whatever have you so i have to really understand differentiation what's the unique selling proposition secondly you learn to be extremely the, i mean if i take away a lesson customer focused i mean bill was so good at you know, he'd have a meeting with a customer and within 24 hours, there'd be a nice letter back to the customer saying, thank you for meeting with me. Here are the follow-ups, three, four, five items. I'm like, whoa. And that's like anybody CIO who's, who's, sold, who's bought from Bill McDermott tell you that's a, that's a bill. I mean, he is so thorough with his follow-up. Mm. And typically, I'd be copying a lot of those emails because the actions were to me as one of his lieutenants. <laughs> like, oh, go do this, go do that. But it didn't matter. I mean, like here I'm being copied with the CEO or CIO of a big company. Yeah. And as a result of doing that, your Rolodex expands. You're just starting to meet all these people because you're getting into meetings. And I'd be like, hey, I don't care. If I can get on a sales call with a C-level executive billmaker, put me in the meeting. I want to go. And I'll take any of the action items that come out of it. That's the second lesson. And the third, I can go on now, but let me give you a third one and then pause for a second. Embrace escalations. Most often, engineers who come, people who come from engineering product times, when it comes to an escalation, they run. They flee for the hills. Hmm. They don't want to be involved because they either want to blame the customer or the consultant or the sales rep, and it's never their code. And I began to learn, like, listen, you know, the best time to embrace a customer is during an escalation with the hope that you can turn their rants into raves. Okay. Mm. Sometimes I wasn't successful, but I will tell you the times I engaged and doubled down with a customer during escalation and I turned them around. Those customers are my customers. Even today, they call me like, Hey, how are you doing? They're, they became friends for life. And it's a lot like a doctor. I mean, there, in many cases, you know, when you're dealing with a customer as, as a sales rep or a go-to-market person, you're like a doctor. You're prescribing things to them, you know. And you think about the doctor who has done a surgical operation on you that saved your life. Man, you're forever grateful to that medical professional. And I think that's the same way. When you have a consultative way of not shoving product down their, their throat, but consultatively doing what's right by them, even in some cases saying, hey, we're not ready. I'm not ready for right now. Give us six, 12 months. And if you end up buying our competitor, that's okay. But I want to learn then what are the missing features. I'll come back to you in 12 months. I can't tell you the number of, of CIOs was like, man, I'm so amazed that you were willing to say that. So all of those lessons of, you know, what we would call customer success and customer excellence today, I learned, you know, working for Bill. Uh, and then there's many, many tactical you know, things I take away, how to run a forecast call. Well, it was just amazing, man. I tell you, uh, I, during those four years from 2009 to 2013, I just had a ball, uh, I would say, learning many of these lessons. And there were others. Bill wasn't the only person. Rob Enslin, who now runs sales at Google, good friend of mine, 
watching him at action, action, uh, you know, pristine, great, great. I mean, he's one of the best. So this is a lot like, you know, it's a little bit like sports, right? And you watch these athletes, you're good at something. If not, you wouldn't be playing in the same field with them. But you watch somebody else who's got a craft and they're really good at it. And good athletes, they're, you know, they're competitive, but, you know, LeBron's respecting Kobe. Sure. Uh, you know, Magic Johnson's respecting Michael Jordan. Patrick Mahomes is, like, respecting Tom Brady. There's respect that goes because you see something they've done that you want to learn from. And that's, I think, the tremendous aspect of, of leadership. I think as a leader, we've always got to look to people. You know, I mean, Grant, when I first met you and I started to hear what you're trying to replicate, I was like, man, there's a fire in your belly. There are things that you are looking to do in your small company that I want to learn from. So as much as you're making this interview about me sharing lessons, part of the reason I agreed to do it was I like what you're doing in the company and I like the hunger that you have and the ways in which you are exploring, you know, making yourself relevant in platforms and containers and Kubernetes and everything that replicated is something I want to learn from. And the day you as a leader start to think you know it all and don't need to learn, it's quite frankly the day you will die. Not literally die. You will die mentally and certainly die in relevance to other people who want to learn from you. So I think when you do that, you know, you're a happy person because every exploratory conversation with somebody else is you're asking them questions as opposed to just talking, talking, talking all the time. Yeah, and I you said something earlier that I, I thought was a really great great way to wrap that up, which was like, don't be a know it all, be a learn it all. I like, and I've I've had, like I've ever heard someone say it that way, and I'm like, but I love that because it makes tons of sense. I mean, core value replicated is always curiosity. That's Carol Dweck. Okay. I mean, there's a great book called The Growth Mindset. I'm just quoting her. Yeah, uh, she's a fantastic. I mean, it, it really applied to learning. When I first read her book, it was about children, mm. right? You want to develop a a learning mindset. I mean, when you think about a kid, right? They ask questions that are very open-ended. Here's a good example of an open-ended question. You know, why is the sky blue? That's a very open-ended question. Adults tend to ask a question like this. Hey, isn't the sky blue? That's a close-ended question, right? So when we start to ask more inquisitive, why, how, what if, things of those kinds, you learn a lot. So she was writing how kids tend to be in that stage where even when they have failures, you want to develop the learning mindset. Learning mindset, learning mindset. Okay, I made a mistake. That's okay. It's not the end of the world. What did I do wrong? I learned, move forward. Certainly celebrate the pictures, but when you have that mindset, you start to build that part of your brain, which is a learn it all. And I found that to be extremely helpful to not just, I mean, you can apply that to your kids, uh, which is good, but you can also apply that certainly to our leadership uh, growth. And by the way, Satya Nadella, if you read his book, Hit Refresh, he is all over uh, Carol Dweck's research. He used this as his basis of his coming out as CEO of Microsoft, and that's what turned the company around. I mean, his growth mindset was what put Microsoft on a very different trajectory eight, nine years ago, whenever Satya took over as CEO of the company. Wow, that's that's great. I just, uh, the idea of constantly learning and coming at things like with curiosity, I find to be just a really important approach. Like even when you think you understand, like, you, you know, in a personal relationship, or if you think you knew someone's motivations or why something happened, bringing that that sort of curiosity into even personal relationships, and just like trying to make sure that you know that you you, you aren't in somebody else's in somebody else's mind, right? You're actually you need to approach like how are they per- receiving this and perceiving everything with curiosity. That way, 
you know, you can actually learn like, oh, they, they weren't thinking in the thing that you were sort of ascribing to their intentions. And it, I don't know, I, I've, I've found like stepping back and just asking questions in the beginning for anything to like clear up much more misunderstanding than trying to say like, hey, I think you did this because of X, Y, and Z or trying to, you know, almost accuse somebody of doing something, right? It's much better to like, hey, like, tell me more about what happened here. How did this happen? That's been a huge growth opportunity for me in the last like year, realistically. I think that's great, man. Well, well said. And listen, I mean, I want to hang around. I'll tell you, the type of people I want to hang around are people who I could learn from that, hey, I want to ask you questions. Anytime we meet, there's a little bit. I mean, unfortunately, this podcast is a lot of me talking. But if you and I are doing a one-on-one. Well, that's the point. That's why I wanted, that's why I wanted you here, so we can get to get your story. I appreciate that. But when we do a one-on-one, you know that because we've done a few of these. Yeah. I'm asking you questions. I've got like 15 questions. I mean, we may only be doing a half an hour, but I want to learn about what's making you grow from Milestone X and ARR to Milestone Y that you're trying to do it. How, how, what are you seeing in the market? You know, and that's, I think, what we all have to do. And then I, I think, listen, everything in life isn't always about learning because at some point in time, you do become a smart person. Your job, if you are a smart person in a particular area, call yourself a teacher then, is to teach others because you have to share. I mean, part of this is hopefully some, if there's some small nugget that this podcast teaches another entrepreneur something they could take away, mission accomplished in doing this podcast for you, Grant. So that's, I think that's how the circle of life is, right? You're, you got this virtuous cycle of teaching and learning and teaching and learning and teaching and learning, and then you never retire. I mean, you're yeah. doing that till the day you die, physically die, man. So and I, when I talk to retired people who have physically retired out of a job, they're like still learning. And they tell me, listen, I got to keep my body physically active, but I've also got to keep my mind, which is a, which is a muscle in itself, uh, mentally active. And if I don't do that in some form of mental, you know, intellectual capacity, you find they age faster. Yeah. So I think that this is, especially with COVID now, many of us are working out of home, it feels a little bit like semi-retirement. You got to like find ways by which you're constantly looking to learn and teach and learn and teach. It's a virtuous cycle. Yeah, I love that. I mean, and, you know, it's the virtuous cycle of humanity. That's why we were, you know, we have the, you know, the amount of success that we do. We build on what what our ancestors and the people that came before us learned, and then we we bring more value, and then we teach the people after us, and they, you know, it keeps it keeps progress, you know, moving. So I love that. Yeah, I call that sort of your teachable point of view. Hmm. Um, I learned that from some of the work that uh, you know, uh, one of the companies it was, I think, maybe informatic. We had somebody who was teaching leadership at GE, uh, Noel Tishi was a gentleman, incredible uh, a professor at who ran the leadership program for GE during the years of Jack Welch. But he came and taught us uh, this sort of point. I wrote and written a blog about if you, you know, search on, on Google, Sanjay Poonin and, you know, leadership lessons, teachable point of view. Hmm. I think every one of us has to build a teachable point of view. I mean, GE's was that they were the company that minted the most CEOs. I mean, some of the biggest and best CEOs came out of GE. They were a people factory. Uh, you, so you didn't go to GE necessarily to be the best in financial capital, GE capital, but you learned to be a general manager very, very well there. So, you know, each of us has some gift that we're developing as we get better and better at that. If you built a teachable point of view, you want to be able to then use that to be able to groom and grow others, especially those younger, uh, to learn from you. And then if you're a growing leader, hopefully your collage is a mixture of the things you've learned from other people. And then a good part of it is your own DNA. 
Uh, I mean, you look, you know, I, I admired in basketball. I'm big. I love sports. I love uh, practically any sport. But Kobe Bryant was like somebody I loved him. But you could watch Kobe Bryant. You could say, this guy has been watching Michael Jordan from his, I mean, every move of his. Mm. But then, I mean, there was a nuance of what he did that was different from Michael. Uh, I mean, those are the places where you'd improvise on them, right? Yeah. So you you want to allow individuality and not just be a carbon copy of some other leader because, you know, we're not made to be just robots. But uh, I think if you, you know, there's many people I admire, but then I look at their qualities, often things I like, things, things I don't like, and then say, listen, here's parts I admire, I'm going to emulate, and then I am who I am, I'm going to be different. So uh, I think those are great, great lessons, and, and that did me very well for both SAP and VMware to kind of take a good collage of the people in my life that I could learn from. Yeah. It also underscores the importance of, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you're, you're a, an average of the five people you spend the most time with or something, right? Like that, that kind of concept. And it's true in work as well, right? So people join great companies to be around other people who care and are working hard and are trying to accomplish something interesting. Yeah, it's funny because the other, other like core value for us replicated is always like care deeply. I'm like, I really just want people th- to work here that really care about the work that they're doing. And I always say, you don't have to totally define yourself by the work that you do, but you should partially define yourself yeah. by the, your career, by what you're up to. And, and that's not always the most common or popular opinion, right? Like, you know, work-life balance is important, but I still want people, you know, I talk about background processes. I want folks to actually you know, when they're on a run or in the shower, think about a problem from work, right? Think about something that we're trying to solve because that's really valuable time. And only folks that like actually care deeply are going to put that kind of effort in. No, you absolutely got that right. And they make such a difference. And there's so much a joy. If you you also really care about, you know, about what you're doing, they're the people who are a joy to work with because, you know, they might, but you might butt heads with them, but like you both care and that matters so much. No, passion's a very important piece of it. Listen, I mean, I've been very fortunate when I talk about, you know, I think I can kind of quote another framework. Warren Buffett said he looks for three qualities in people, you know, energy, smarts, and integrity. Hmm. And if you have the first two but don't have the third, it will kill you. So, I mean, integrity is like the foundation of the house. Okay, yeah. you, 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 you absolutely don't want to be hiring someone who is, you know, a bad apple because they will corrupt the good apple basket. I mean, and that that's really fundamental. It's pretty sad. I see a lot of people who tolerate people with poor integrity of some kind. I mean, how they, especially how they treat people. I mean, when I talk about people who are rude and condescending, whether it's misogyny or whatever it is, you know, that, that's got to be rooted out of every company. Yeah. But then the other two pillars are just important. Smart and energy. And I'll tell you, there's a lot of, you know, when you have someone who's both cerebral and charismatic, it's a really, really great combo. Uh, and I've always thought to say, listen, what I want to bring to every day at the workplace, you're going to sense energy and passion for me. I'm going to put everything on the field. That's how I was born to play. I'm an energetic, passionate person to start with, but I'm going to bring that to the workplace or bring that to anything I do. And, you know, my team hopefully then feeds off that energy uh, because so much of, of winning is just about that mindset, right? Hey, we are going to win. Here's why we win. And, I'm going to be the last guy to turn the lights off and maybe the first guy to come in the office. I'm, I'm much more of a late night owl than an early morning bird. So I'm going to be probably the prisoner, but I'll work the midnight owl and you're going to see hard work from me. And you're going to see that, you know, kind of undefeatable energy that's, you know, so 
I, I think you got, and that's when you talked about those are the type of people you want to work with. If you can create, now everyone may not be charismatic and, you know, kind of pounding the table, high energy. And those, sometimes you don't want people who are just artificial forms of energy mm-hmm. that are just hot air without substance. But I do think there's something to be said. I see a lot of companies that kind of feel deflated when that energy level leaves uh, the organization. And you have to, as a leader, constantly look for, you know, people who are energizer bunnies, who are bringing that into the company in, you know, measured doses. And especially when, you know, you if you're not that type of person yourself, you need to surround your, yourself with people who can bring that charisma and energy to the company. Yeah. It's just as important remote as it is in person too. Like there's a oh, there's man. a level of, you know, I was I was telling folks, it was like when you're when you're hosting a meeting and you're the you know virtual host, like you need to be engaging and make sure people are like, you know, are are moving along and having fun. And you know, you have to you have to bring a lot of energy. Like I, it's funny, I, I take naps after some of my meetings because I use so much of my energy trying to like, you know, bring it together. I think Zoom and remote has taught us a lot about, listen, you have to do things that also mix it up. And like, yeah. I, I, when I, I mean, it's been a while since I've been on large conference calls. But, you know, in 2021, if you, you just, I posted them all on YouTube or LinkedIn. I do goofy stuff. Like, I mean, I would record a song because I'm a musician, a pianist, and I would sing a song that was like a little spoof on all of my team members. And I recorded and four minutes of the team meeting was listening. And people would, I just watched their faces. I mean, it's on Zoom. I'm like, hey, I recorded the song for all of you guys as my little uh, Christmas holiday present to you. Okay. And it was uh, a song done to the Beatles song, Let It Be. Okay. And I mean, people love it. It's on YouTube. You can watch it. Yeah. But it was a way of just saying thank you and great and poking a little fun at, at a few of them. Everyone on my staff got a, a line in the song. I love that. Uh, yeah. And it was fantastic. It took me all of like 10 minutes to record it. I wrote a few words to it. I improvised on the Beatles song and did it. And I mixed it up. Uh, another time, you know, I, I'm, you know, my kids are watching this little, you know, YouTube channel called Dude Perfect. And, oh, and yeah, it's got sure. all these little crazy shows of these, 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 you know, kind of college kids who are working at home remote. And I stole one of their, their screenplays to do a, you know, a variant of a Zoom call gone bad. Okay. Uh, they did it really well in 30 seconds. I was like, that's a great idea. And I wrote a script for all of our team meeting Zoom call gone bad. And, you know, it was last year this time that I posted it on, YouTube and LinkedIn. And it was fun. And we would just do these kinds of stuff. And in the remote setting, you just have to find other ways by which you're making fun of yourself. You're, you're, you're poking, you know, you're having humor injected. I mean, it's just, you have to find ways by which you're lighting it up and people, you want people to be able to say, you know what? I loved working for that team or for that person. They were a great person to work for. They took care of me and they were just fun to be around. That's the person I want. That's the person I want to be, right? And I mean, it, it, when you work around people like that, it just it, it, it's it's infectious. I want to be around people. When I see people like that, that just exude energy uh, and are constantly looking for ways to bring the best out of people, I'm stealing their ideas yeah. because I want to add that to my playbook because that's really what gets teams energized. I love that. Yeah, I actually uh, refer to myself sometimes as the chief entertainment officer. That's awesome. You know, so it's the sa- same idea, right? Like you know, you got to. I, I put on the green, the full body green suit, and you know, and got in front of a green screen to disappear and just like awesome. do. You got you to do great, little man. fun things no, you, in order to create, and you have to break it up the days and create shared experiences. It's so important. Yeah, and just like humor. I mean, especially self deprecating humor. I mean, you want. I mean, the best humor is the ones that make fun of yourself, yeah. as opposed to making fun of others. But find ways by which it's not. And listen, I mean, that's how I'd often, you know, let's talk a little bit about the soft side of life, right? 
I mean, everyone's different. So what I'm going to say now is not necessarily applicable to everybody. But I often think about my life as a juggling act with four balls in them. Okay, that I'm juggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, these four are not necessarily the four that everyone has. So please, you know, people listening to this don't feel like these have to be the exact same four that you have. But you're all juggling sure. balls of some kind. My four happen to be faith, family, friends, and work. Okay. I mean, if you want to add a fifth ball, it's my workout, my health, and all that. But you can add more. But let's start with the top four. Sure. It just so happens three out of those four are made of glass. Not of, it's not a tennis ball. And I'll let you figure out which three those are. Okay. And I will tell you, it's not work. <laughs> I've come to realize because glass meaning if you drop it, you may never get it back. Okay? Yeah. And that's how you want to be thinking of life, you know, quite frankly. So when you look at that with that perspective, you're like, man, you know what? I, for the whatever time I'm at work, what's the worst thing that could happen to me? I'm fired. Okay? Big whoopee. You know, but I want to make my experience here one where people really enjoy it. Certainly if you're a leader. Uh, and most often they remember how you treated them. Right. Yeah. Especially people who are junior to you. I see a lot of leaders, okay, who kick down and kiss up. Mm-hmm. It's the worst kind of leader. They treat people who are below them. You watch them as they come in, you know, the receptionist or the people who are, you know, several lawyers on. They they just treat them, you know, with as if they're a commodity and then they kiss up to the CEO or the board or whoever have you. Those are the worst people to be around. I mean, I want to be a person who actually inverts that pyramid. That's what I call servant leadership. You yeah. take the person who's at the bottom of the pyramid, uh, a leaf level node. It's usually an engineer or a sales rep. And you invert the pyramid and say, listen, me as a seal of the executive, I'm at the bottom of this pyramid. You are at the top because you are serving a customer or you're writing code. And what do I need to do as a leader to take obstacles out of the way and then take the ax to the root of bureaucracy? Because all of those layers between you as a sea level executive and that engineer or sales rep are just like layers. In fact, I would show in my leadership meetings this picture of uh, birds sitting on various different rungs of uh, a tree. And the head bird is looking up. And what do you think the bird at the very bottom looks up and sees? It's crap flowing downhill. Okay. Because <laughs> they're just watching the stuff yeah. flowing down. Yeah. Okay, I'm just being PG 13 on my statement here. But that's often what the engineer at the bottom of the pyramid feels like. Oh, here comes the stuff from the CEO. Yeah. It's rolling downhill. Okay, CEO passes on to VP and VP passes on to senior director, the director and the manager. And finally, I get it and I got it. And quite frankly, when you invert it, you're like, hey, listen, guess what? I'm serving you. I'm not the chief bird sitting at the top of the, the pyramid. What do you need to get your job done? I mean, I would find in my go-to-market roles, and I had half of my time at both SAP, which we talked about, and we got the VMware there at this time, where half of my time there was, and I had a much bigger go-to-market role in VMware. But I found the most rewarding times for me as a, a COO of VMware, where I was running all of the front office, was going on sales calls with reps. Mm. Okay, There was all the layers between me. There may have been seven or eight layers between me and the rep. We're not in the room. It was just me and the rep. I was like, man, this is fantastic. Okay? Yeah. I could ask this rep what's going on in the field. And all of this filtered information that I'm getting in forecast calls, now I get to really ask. And I wanted to spend, I mean, if we went on a sales call and we could go and have a meal afterwards, I was peppering that rep with every question I could because I was looking to get a reality what was actually happening in the trenches as opposed to something that by the time it got to me up the pyramid was, you know, I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. So I think as a leader, you have to, really sidestep all i mean layers are there for a reason you can't have all you know eighty thousand people at sap when i was there or whatever thirty five thousand people at vm all report to me as c-level executive no you have to have layers but you as a leader especially the higher you go you have to find way by which you are sidestepping the layers and getting right to the leaf level and celebrating their success 
understanding what they're doing and empowering them to come to you, not to just rat on their boss. That's not what you're trying to do, right. just to snitch up the chain. But if there's things that they need to get out of the way, you won't hear it. By the time it gets to you, it's insulated. They're, you know, they're trying to make sure the good news travels up. I want to hear about the bad news as soon as possible. Yeah, that's a great point. And you realize when you do those kind of like super skip levels that, you know, things aren't as good, right? You're like, you're like, oh, we need to fix these things. And sometimes you just get, you get plugged right into the problem and you can help, you know, allocate the resources and move folks around. And Easier at a smaller company, Grant, tougher in a bigger company. But I think your point still made was absolutely right. You want to be hearing it and being, and listen, some people, I mean, at the, when they realize that they become master complainers, right? They just, oh my yeah. gosh, the C-level executive is doing, a, I'm going to just vet. And you're like, okay. So often when people come to me with a list of complaints, the first thing I ask them is like, okay, have you thought about possible solutions to this that you've thought about? Don't expect that I have the answers to all of it. What, how would you solve it? What are the suggestions you have? And if they haven't thought about it, like, okay, I love what you're doing about it, but why don't you go spend a week thinking about a solution? Send me an email with ways in which you would suggest. Yeah. And when you force them to think through that, right? I think you actually come back with people who are actually, you know, solving some of that. I mean, Amazon has this sort of, uh, I mean, I learned a lot from Andy Jassy and, you know, the culture that Jeff Bezos set up at Amazon. We did a lot in my years at VMware with them. And Andy was a classmate of mine in business school, so he's a good friend. But a lot of the ways in which they built uh, improvement of their culture, they make people write a document on what you want to do as opposed to just spouting it off in words and a PowerPoint. These are ways by which you start to develop rigor uh, into your thinking, even as a low level, and someone could write a nice five-page document that was more powerful than any of the mid-level managers, mm-hmm. and that could be the plan that Amazon was going to say we're going to go pursue because an engineer decided this was what they were going to pursue and had an innovative idea. You want to be able to find ways by which those ideas are being celebrated and pulled up as quickly as possible uh, because when you get to be a larger and larger organization, bureaucracy sets in, and it's the sad truth. I see so many leaders, vice presidents, you know, then you have senior vice presidents, whatever, they're just resting, investing in big companies. The hunger is gone. Mm. They're collecting their paycheck. They're N years away from retirement. And they're only manage, managing escalations. They're like, okay, my customer's happy. They're not building innovation. Mm. Yeah. And then some startup comes and disrupts them. That's the nature of life. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, I like startups because I think there is a lot of that out there where folks are fat and happy and you can kind of, you know, go build something new, creative, innovative, and, and really work your butt off to, to you know, create a lot of, you know, enterprise values. So that's why I think this is a fun game, even though... Well, I like that you're doing that uh, and replicated. And yeah. I, I think, you know, I mean, certainly my time in the last four or five months since I left VMware has been incredible meeting entrepreneurs. I just set, set a goal the last four or five months just to meet as many entrepreneurs here who are doing great stuff and learn from them, ask them in a few cases you know, even investing and funding them. Uh, but it's fascinating. Yeah, so I, I celebrate CEOs like you who are looking to innovate and are building something embryonically. You have a much tougher job as a CEO of a small company than a mid-level or senior executive at a big company that has the brand. But the lessons you will learn about hunger, about teamwork, about, you know, grit are lessons that often the big companies don't learn because the fat and lazy folks there are sloppy in whether the way they build a product or the way they sell a product. Yeah, the uh, 
the determination you have to have to work for startups and be able to hear no and keep coming back is is definitely a valuable valuable lesson and sure. skill you build up over time. But yeah. let's let's talk more about your you know some of your time at VMware. I, I want to d- dig in there a little bit because I mean you know such a important company in, in enterprise software created so many of the foundational technologies that really you know paved the way for what the cloud is you know and so just like let's just hear about what your role was, how it came about, what you kind of started off doing there, um, some of the things you accomplished, and that's and some of the things you learned there too, and lessons you take away. Yeah, I mean, listen, uh, way back to 2013, I was at SAP. You know, I, I sensed that my career was sort of stalling a little bit in the sense that I think if I really wanted to progress, I felt I probably needed to be in Germany. Mm. I was happy. I was not unhappy, uh, but at that time. Pat Gelsinger was CEO of VMware. He's now CEO of Intel. And Joe Tucci was chairman of VMware, called me because they were trying to kind of rejuvenate the end-user computing division of VMware. This was the product that built virtual desktops. And uh, they didn't really have a mobile strategy, but it was a small business, maybe about 200, 300 million. Uh, the company at the time, I think, was about 4 billion in revenue. But it was literally across the street from me at SAP. If you come to a, mm. a Palo Alto in, in uh, you know, there's on Hillview Avenue, on the one side of the street is SAP, and exactly opposite the street was VMware. So I really admired this company that invented virtualization. I watched the growth of virtual machines and really admired what Diane had built in that company. So there's a great amount of admiration. And what they needed was kind of a little bit of an adrenaline shot to take end-user computing to the next level. And my thesis there was, listen, this is 2000, you know, my, I'd really, my life had been revolutionized by the iPhone and iPad and everything that Steve Jobs had invented at my favorite company, Apple. Um, and I felt like mobile was going to change the world. So I remember asking them, like, hey, what's your mobile strategy? I mean, what do you, I mean, okay, there's all the virtual desktops around, but the world's not desktops. I mean, yeah, there is some desktops. But what, what are you viewing about security and and user computing, I kind of joked you could end user computing if you didn't have a mobile strategy. I'd like, you know, and and I think the company had, but wasn't bold enough. So I encouraged them to be like, hey, we got to be bold. And, you know, I think that means possibly an acquisition. Mm-hmm. And even before I joined, I got sense from Joe, who was the chairman of the board, that he would support if I put a good thesis together. That helped. Mm-hmm. I think having the chairman of the board be like, hey, you put a good thesis together. We didn't have confidence that somebody inside the company could run this, but you seem to be somebody who's done this reasonably well at SAP. Um, gave me like, okay, you know what? I still have got to do the work to put the case together. But here I've got support, not just from the CEO, but the chairman of the board to say, hey, you come in here, put a case together, we'll support you. So I had a clear sense coming in that there were two companies, largely because I was seeing them in my, you know, I was running the mobile division of, of, of SAP. Right. There were two companies that were doing security mobile devices very well, AirWatch and Mobile Iron. I mean, at that time, this was 2011, 2012. And they were just beating us at SAP every single time on that aspect. There were many other things VMware, uh, SAP did in, in mobile, but that piece of it, those two companies were just eating our lunch. Every single time we competed against them, we would lose. So I was like, man, and I tried to buy one of those companies at SAP, but it, we couldn't make it work. And anyway, so I was tracking those guys from a distance and I had a perspective that those were one of the two companies that would succeed. And uh, over the course of the next six months, we built a case to buy, you know, uh, AirWatch. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the thinking on why we bought them, Mobileline is a very good company. I've, we ended up hiring a number of people from them to respect them. But we actually, uh, AirWatch was the smaller company. And mm. in the Magic Quadrant, I think if I remember right, they were behind Mobileline in, in, in sort of execution or vision or one of those sort of axes. In revenue, they were certainly behind. 
But I liked the hunger of these young kids in Atlanta. I mean, it was a group of, I don't know, maybe a thousand or 800 employees. Uh, they all had this sort of trading floor, a big office where everyone was on a trading floor. Everyone was on one single mm. floor, huge office. And you could just feel the energy in that room. Um, all like University of Georgia, Georgia Tech, I mean, like a whole bunch of Southeast grads of some college, young and were vibrant, and they just wanted to win. Mm. And I felt like, you know what, you know, a lot of the Silicon Valley, no insult to the place where we all live, many of the engineers here, they, they have an entitlement. You buy them and two years later, they're gone. They want to go start the next big company. And I don't know if that was going to be the case, but I was sure. worried that Mobile Line would have that, you know, mindset and we would lose the employees. And I wanted something that was tucked away four or five hours away and with that energy that I just was found so infectious. And they just needed a platform, VMware, to happen. So we ended up buying the company in early 2014, and it changed everything in our end-user computing business. It, oh, wow. it just took off all of a sudden. We had a mobile strategy. We were competing you know, against not just Mobile Iron, but Citrix and a variety of others. And like, all of a sudden, like, wow, people said VMware was back. And the next, I, I would say, three, four years that I ran that business, we just hired incredible people. And the team from Airwatch just did an enormously good job. And I, all I had to do was be like the Phil Jackson. If I again come back to sports, I wasn't an, any more the Michael Jordan. I mean, as you get to be in bigger, bigger roles, you start to realize you're not the star on the with six seconds on the clock. There's other people who are going to do it. You just need to be the person orchestrating them. And I had to find. I mean, ego. These were very different. You know, characteristic of people in Atlanta from the core team uh, at VMware and Palo Alto, culturally very different. Sure, uh, I had to really try to be the glue, and we were very fortunate. I mean, we set up a way to integrate that in reasonably well by giving them both autonomy. Now, I'd had a fair amount of experience integrating acquisitions at SAP, and so I'd, it was the first time I did it, so I had a playbook of how to do that well, but the support from the, the VMware executive team and the board was very strong, and we were reasonably successful in taking that business from, I think, two or three hundred million to multi-billion. In fact, I wrote a blog of my lessons on that, which you can find on the internet. So I would say that that first foray of, again, a product engineering type of job, a running end-user computing, was tremendously helped by the acquisition of AirWatch. And, and just like, uh, for, for me, really, like when you're building the case around buying a company, is it like a kind of a similar case around like, hey, this is, you know, again, uh, the way a VC might look at an investment and say like, hey, here's the write-up, here's what we think this can grow to, here's where we think we can actually find some efficiencies, here's how we can multiply out the sales channel, and, you know, you're really building a case for the economic value that you can, you know, hey, we think we can pay this price for the company, but, you know, 10x the sales within two years. Is that sort of the overall, like, strategy? Or how, yeah, how, I mean, different companies are different, so I think it was helpful to me to have our head of M&A, Shaker IR at the time, you know, he was very good at knowing how VMware's board looks at M&A cases. I mean, I'd known how SAP, but I was a newcomer there, right? So I spent a lot of time with him helping understand. He did a masterful job at sort of helping me understand. I mean, ultimately, I relied on him for the mechanics and the execution, but I was the strategy behind it. But he had dealt with the board on a number of different... This was the biggest acquisition in 2013, 2014 that we'd ever done. One point, I mean, at that time, $1.5 billion. So wow. we yeah. were asking the company to spend a lot of money. And at that time, I mean, 15x, I think the company was about $100 million in revenue at the time. I mean, today, 15x is an incredible multiple. People would pay that in a heart. It's a deal. Yeah. We have crazy valuations. <laughs> yeah. But um, at that time, 15 was a, I mean, I remember I was like, some one board member said, this is as much as Google paid for YouTube. Are you going to make it a successful YouTube? I, I'm not going to be as big as YouTube, but I think it's important. <laughs> so in some senses, 
this was viewed as a risk and it wasn't in the core business VMware. So VMware is not a mobile and they were a data center company. So there was lots of questions I had to be prepared to answer to, you know, practically everybody in the board. But yeah, listen, I got to tell you, both the management team, Pat, and, you know, the team that, and then Joe Tucci on the board, I got to tell you, the support he provided as the chairman of the board to lean in, I felt like he kept his word. When I, when I, when I was interviewing, he said, listen, you put a good case together, I will back you to He was a man of his word. And trust, you know, Bill McDermott used to say, trust is the ultimate human currency. I respect people who keep their word. When they say what they mean and they mean what they say, I mean, listen, things can change and things, but I, I, the people I respect the most are the people who, when they say they're going to do something for you, they come through and they do it. Yeah. And I mean, my disrespect goes up 10. I'll do anything for that person. When they don't, I lose confidence in them, right? So Joe was a man of his word and he helped really say, hey, this is what you need to do or places where it wasn't. He would be, and once the chairman of the board is like, you know, supportive, he's going to go to work with the rest of the board to say, hey, listen, we're going to do this, okay? And if there's, I don't need to go and convince every single board member of the chairman of the board and the key members of the board are. Mm. So that art of knowing, you know, there's certainly, yeah, your presentation and your logic and your financials are good. But when you're making a decision of this kind, there's many softer aspects of it that I was very grateful to, uh, you know, many of these uh, folks who were able to help. And for me, being a new executive to VMware, I had to, I had not, I needed to come across with a little bit of humility and not arrogance. Like I, I can do it, you know, put it in me because I'm new. Mm. Like who is this kid? Why, why does he think he's going to be able to do it? I certainly had a track record at SAP, but I wanted to approach it with a sense of hunger, but humility. I use those terms a lot. H and H, hunger and humility. You want to mm. be hungry. They want to realize, hey, listen, I want this asset. This should be at the top of our acquisition list above anything else. But I'm going to be humble and not arrogant. That I mean, I'm going to be very transparent as to all the risks and then I'm going to go manage those risks so they don't fail. So we knew coming in, like I did a lot of due diligence on the reasons Airwatch lost to their competitors. And we did an internal bake-off with our own IT team, evaluating the product. Because I wanted to know, once we bought the product, when I do the conversations with their management team trying to, to vet the company, they're only going to give me the golden glossy reasons they win. Yeah. I want to know the reasons they lose from a buyer. So I would call mobile iron customers who would pick mobile iron over Airwatch. Why'd you pick them? You know, I'd have our team look at, and I knew coming in all the reasons this tool locked I me. Mean, they weren't, they were fixable reasons, but I wanted to know those. So you want to know every aspect of the skeletons in the closet. This is all what people call due diligence, right? Do your due diligence. Yeah. And you're never done completely. At some point, you're like, listen, it's a little bit like dating or married. You got to like, okay, this is good. Let's do it. Let's, let's go forward. We're going to discover the rest of it as we go along. And there were many things I discovered about Airwatch after the fact, but many of the early surprises were not early surprises. I knew, okay, we're going to be dealing with this aspect, whether it's a product issue or a cultural issue. Mm. Um, we were very, I made a, we made a deal with the, um, the CEO and the, you know, the chairman of the board, two very incredible people, Alan DeBerry and John Marshall, to, hey, please stay with us. And we made it financially attractive for them to stay with us for, I told one of them for two years and told the other one for three years and they didn't blink. They, they kept their commitment. There certainly was a financial reason for them to do it, but more than that, it was their reputation. Yeah. They've now gone on to do something else. They're now funders of another new company, but that's how it works, right? If you do well and you sell your company to somebody else and you're willing to stay and help that be successful, when you start the next thing, 
some VC is going to ask me like, Hey, what do you think of these guys? I'm like, Hey, I backed them 200%. They were so successful in VMware. Sure. So there are many elements like this. Now, listen, I've had other acquisitions that have not gone as well, but certainly I've learned a lot from the ones that have gone well as to the playbook I'd want to apply, um, you know, in, in other acquisitions. And I think for the most part, if you ask people, it's been many, many years now, eight years ago that we acquired, you know, eight years ago, actually this month. Yeah. Last week of January, 2014. So it's many years ago, but I think for the most part, if you ask people at VMware, they would say at that time for the first four years, AirWatch was a smashing success. And credit to the team. I was certainly the the Phil Jackson orchestrated together, but the the Dennis Rodmans and the Scotty Pippins and the Michael Jordans were the people who made it happen. There were many, many people there from both AirWatch and the VMware team that made it successful. Yeah, I mean, you know, those those acquisitions are, are... It's, it's it's really interesting to hear how the sausage is made, right? Because it's like you, you're just not. It's hard to get that insight. It's hard to really understand. Like you know, I've been on the other side. I, you know, my first company was acquired for just a little bit of money, and so I've got to. I've I've been acquired, but I've never acquired anything, right? And so it's really interesting to hear how you think about it and how you actually process it. And you know, I love I love the idea of just like such deep diligence and just like kind of like being consumed with this uh, idea and really diving in. It's great. I mean, I'd say the other thing is, is like, let's say I was looking to acquire you, right? I mean, you start to build a camaraderie with the CEO of that business. Sure. And you sense like, you know what? I mean, I really liked John Marshall and I, I like their grit and the way they, they just went relentlessly after a market. And they, they were different from me, but that's okay. I don't, I don't, the, the people I'm friends with aren't all like me. Sure. But you build a camaraderie with them and you realize what you want to do is just put more fuel behind their fire, mm-hmm. more, you know, logs of, uh, into their flame. They've got the fire going. Your job is not to come and say, hey, the fire's all wrong, turn it off, let's move it somewhere else. Of course, if it's broken, you need to do that. Sure. But if it's going well, you don't want to come in and mess with it. Just put more logs. So like, hey, what can I bring to this incredible operation that I watch going well? More leads. They need sales. Okay, I will introduce you to every CIO I know and open the door for you. And if you have an escalation, I'll handle it, but I'm not going to interfere with your, if you have a roadmap, that's not correct. I'll ask questions, but I'm not going to meddle with your roadmap. Go get it done. Sure. Right. If a customer calls me to complain about the product, I'll listen to them and then I'll go help you. But that's a very different mindset from coming in, micromanaging them and saying, you need to go here. And then you start pulling apart the baby. So we left everything, engineering, sales, all underneath the CEO and said, listen, run it for another two years without us dismantling the baby. Right now, after two or three years, we started to integrate it a little bit more in. So we had a recipe and a playbook of how we were were successful. And I think you know that and one or two others. Um, I mean, by the same thing we did for business objects at SAP. So I was kind of used a little bit to that playbook, you know, of gradual integration as opposed to a speedy integration in, especially when you have a strong leader, a strong CEO mm-hmm. and a strong leader who can make that happen. So yeah, I mean, I, I would I would not say I can write the textbook on. Successful MA, I think, you know, there are many other companies who've done it many more times at scale. I think Salesforce has got an incredible process for integrating MA. They've done yeah. very well with large ones, you know, whether it's Tableau or MuleSoft, or now hopefully Slack goes well. Yeah. And in the past, some of the things that they acquired before that, you know, Cisco has been mixed in some of their acquisitions. So I don't know that in the past they were very good at it. So you, you always look at these bigger companies and you can certainly tell the ones that have done good ones and the ones that have not done good ones. Yeah. I look at uh, some of those companies that do really great acquisitions. I think you're right. Salesforce has been has been one of them, 
And sometimes you just have to like take some bets and like go after and go get something that like other people are like, that's a high price for, but. Oh, they've taken those bets, man. Can you believe that? I mean, the bet for Slack was my goodness. Yeah. And, uh, the bet, I mean, they almost bought LinkedIn. They almost bought Twitter. I mean, they've, they've had a lot of consideration for things. So I, I admire, uh, you know, that's the chut spot of Mark Benioff. He's willing to yeah. shoot for the stars if it's important. So you, you got, you got to respect people like that. Yeah. He's been a force there for sure. Um, I mean, uh, other lessons from VMware. And the other thing I want to talk about before we before we wrap is just like some of your board experience too, because I know you've been on, you know, you've advised so many great companies, and you've been such a great board member for other places. So we'd love to dive in a bit of that. Yeah, no, I mean, let's. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I mean, my time at VMware you could divide into two halves. One, which was a product. I mean, it's a little bit like SAP. One, which was a product engineering job, and the second was CEO running all of sales and marketing. Probably the biggest lesson I would say from the second job was, I mean, humility again. Now for the first time, I mean, I, I ran specialist sales teams at SAP, meaning all the industry and specialists, people who were at, at now at VMware is running all the sales teams directly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I had 18 or 20 quarters. And, you know, you want to approach every one of them like, hey, I could get fired if I don't make the number. So you want to meet and beat. Uh, you have expectations and you have a sales team to help you do that. And it's always a moment of reckoning the last few hours of the quarter when you're closing a quarter <laughs> and it's either a moment of jubilation or a little bit of reflection at the earnings call because it's I mean, public companies, it's confidential until you reveal it, but enormous jubilation if the quarter's gone great and then you congratulate the sales teams or at kickoffs when you've had a great year, nothing like that. It's so, in, I mean, so I loved that side of it. And I naturally like the, the skinning the cat, going and getting a nice big deal. Uh, so some of the biggest deals that we ever did I was just really delighted to be involved in cracking some of them, you know, nine-figure deals and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. So we, we had a lot of fun, and we built a good team in doing that. I think the other piece I really took away was, uh, you know, the ecosystem. I've always believed that you sit on the shoulders of giants. Newton said that, right? You see more clearly if you sit in, when you sit, right. sit on the shoulders of giants. And these ecosystem players to us, uh, AWS, Microsoft, Google, uh, you know, Alibaba, IBM, this, you know, and of course the SIs, I believe that we needed to build strategic partnership and it wasn't something VMware did well. I mean, they were a smaller company, didn't sell as well to the CIOs and the, the, and really, I mean, viewed Amazon for the length of time. I mean, uh, and wrongfully so as a competitor. Right. In fact, I think one of the biggest mistakes we ever made was trying to build a public cloud to compete with Amazon for, I think, three or four years. Mm. And that was an unmitigated disaster that ultimately we had to unwind. We wasted four years doing that. And then finally, we did the Amazon relationship. I was very fortunate to uh, help lead and architect some of that relationship. And in part of it was Andy Jassy had been a uh, you know, friend of mine and classmate. So I had a relationship with him and I pushed really hard. Uh, but Raghu, who was also involved in that, he is current CEO of VMware. I mean, he and I worked very closely on that. Uh, Pat, our CEO uh, at the time, you know, supported it. And we went and got that done. And that was a turning point for the company, mm-hmm. the partnership with Amazon. I mean, all of a sudden, I called it when I've talked about this publicly, a Berlin Wall moment. You took that sort of Soviet Union and U.S. tension and you, the Berlin Wall just fell. Yeah. And all of a sudden, customers, I mean, literally for the next two, three years, the stock price of the company just rode on the momentum that VMware had a cloud strategy. I mean, we were building the product. We didn't even have it as yet. But the Amazon-VMware partnership really put a level of, Shuts by the company. And I think that that was a really watershed moment for the company around 2015, 2016, where we, I mean, our stock price was, was in the tank because uh, people didn't believe in our cloud strategy. Mm. The, the previous CEO of the company left, the CFO left. I mean, 
two senior executives quit. Pat asked me to become CEO of the company. And here we were rebuilding the stock price that had gone from, you know, 90 to 45 and taking it back up. And that was a fantastic next three years. So, you know, the, everything in life is about these ebbs and flows. And you have to, again, you know, when you hit the valley of a, realize, okay, you know what? We can get out of this valley. I mean, in that $45 sort of stock price of the company, 18 billion market cap, I still remember that vividly. I was in India at the time and I was just watching the stock price crumble. I mean, uh, after a Q3 earnings call, I think 2015 or 2016. And it was, the, it was the toughest point for the company. And several senior executives left. The board was sort of divided. Some board members left. You know, Michael Dell bought EMC. So we now had a new chairman of the board, new board, everything. And I think building out of that sort of valley with a new strategy, a new partner, and everyone then saying, as we broke, came out of the open, this is the right thing. And seeing the reward of that taught me enormous. And then the next few years, we were very fortunate to build on that partnership with Amazon. And then we did that with, I mean, we were the only company that had marquee, pristine partnerships with with AWS, with Azure, with Google, with Alibaba, with Oracle. Mm. And I was really fortunate to work on all of them. So I felt like that experience of deal-making yeah. with these biggest cloud providers taught me a lot about, and we got to see the insides of all these cloud companies. I could tell you where customers were deploying AWS, Azure, Google, but I could also tell you how the AWS versus Azure versus Google versus Oracle versus IBM or Alibaba team thought about the world because we were inside executive-level discussions with all of them on how they view the world. Now, of course, we weren't sharing with each other of them because there's a Chinese wall in each of our relations with them, but we understood their playbook of how they were going to win and why they were going to win uh, in joint discussions. And we wanted to make those joint customers of AWS and VMware or Azure and VMware enormously successful. And I learned a lot just watching the, the public cloud uh, large players because these guys are now, I mean, think about it, right? You know, AWS... What Andy's built is a sixty billion dollar plus machine. Yeah, Azure is probably forty billion, and and yeah. I think Google's about twenty. So between those two, you have sixty, forty, hundred twenty billion of revenue, current revenue, run rate. I mean that is and growing at some astounding growth rate, maybe thirty eight, forty percent. Yeah, I mean if that is amazing, and to know how and why they're being successful. Uh, was a tremendous. I don't think there was any other company that could have that inside bird's eye view than VMware, and we took advantage of that. Yeah, that's actually really interesting. Like that uh, partner strategy, closely aligning to, to. I mean, it's hard to be able to to win with all of them. And, and you're, to your point, the, the strategy probably five years before that was something to be competitive to try to like, oh, you know, they've got the Zen hypervisor powering this whole thing at at AWS, and it, you know, it's. And it should be VMware that's powering all the VMs there, and it's not. So let's build our own, and then, uh, and then realizing that like there was a there was a complementary strategy together. It's really interesting. Life is a lot of those learnings. Okay, should we talk about boards? Yeah, let's talk, let's let's hear about like you know kind of lessons from boards and in, in your experience there because I think that's another really ch- interesting chapter. I mean, listen, for the bulk of my time at both SAP and VMware, I was you know I was on one nonprofit board of a school. You know, when I was at SAP, good learning experience. But I always found it, man, it's taking time away from either my family or from work. And I was like, man, it's one more. I, I viewed it as kind of a tax I didn't like. So I just kind of, you know, as I joined VMware, resigned off all boards and just said, I need to focus on on work. And then Infor first came to me. They were, you know, kind of an ERP company. And now that I wasn't in the in the app space, you know, I was in the infrastructure space. The app space was clean. So I joined the Infor board. 
I mean, there were trips to New York that I needed to do, but I could combine that with business. I mean, the part of being on another board is you just have to realize it's extra time on your hand and it's mm. going to be time that you take away from. Okay, now, of course, you're not, you're not the operator, so you're not judged on, you're not running the company, but you have to give, you have to read the materials you want to be, your, your job is a fiduciary responsibility to the shareholders, whether it's private or public, to help the company be successful and to provide strategic advice and counsel uh, that is, that's thoughtful. And you're sitting around other people that are really good. So I viewed it as I would join one, maybe max two boards. In fact, I think VMware only allowed you to join two boards as an officer of the company, one public, one private. Hmm. And I had my one pub, I mean, it was, a, it was about to go public. But then info, once Info got sold to uh, the Koch family, I uh, decided to kind of jump off and I served, you know, Michael asked me to serve on the Boomi board. I did that for a while. And then when I left VMware, I had a little more capacity and I decided I would be on two boards, one public, one private. And that's what I am now. I mean, it's not yet finalized, but I've been nominated to the Philips board. It's a European company, the company that's made, it originated lighting, but now it's there in the med tech business. And it's been a fascinating board. And for me, the criteria, as I was getting called by many of these bigger brand companies, was I wanted to work with other colleagues uh, on the board who I really respected and I could learn from. I mean, again, it's sort of learning. And people like Indra Nui, Faike Dejama, these, these folks, it's a very eclectic board of very international experiences. These are seasoned people. I mean, Indra Nui was a, he's a Indian American leader, chairman, CEO of Pepsi, whom I had admired all my life. Mm. And now you get to watch people like her. And I mean, so it's a very good board. And the, the quality of the board was one of the biggest reasons I, and then the, of course the intrigue of what healthcare could do to change and impact lives because it's a very important business. So a lot of learning there. Sure. And then um, Sneak uh, is the other one. It's a developer security. I love security. Uh, some of my people who work for me at VMware, the, Peter McKay, who's CEO of Sneak, um, you know, had been talking to me for a while about joining the board and I really loved what they were doing and I thought they could become the next Palo Alto Networks or CrowdStrike. And when he asked me to do it, I said, okay, this will be my one private company. So those are the two. And then others, listen, you know, where people need advisory help or investing, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm investing in Replicator. I like what you guys are doing. You just make yourself available. So after I left VMware, I uh, I think I invested in 15 or 20 different companies. Again, I'm not writing the size of checks of big VCs, but it's an opportunity to get closer to entrepreneurs. I then now don't have necessarily, you know, sort of conflicts of interest because I'm not working explicitly. And I also didn't want to join a VC uh, firm because uh, I didn't want to do it for just one VC. I wanted to just be able to meet entrepreneurs, see what they were doing. And if they felt I could add value and I had time, uh, help them and also put some money behind the firm. And, you know, I mean, it's been tremendously rewarding, again, with the spirit of learning yeah. and uh, asking yourself how you can help them build a world-class company. Yeah, I think, we, you know, you, you, having you as a best, we're very proud and, and happy you've been super helpful. I think we met initially through uh, Maynard Webb and their fund, the, the Win Web Investing Network, which is just like a group of people that are are some of the best people in the world like Maynard Absolutely. is one of these like I, you know I, I've, I've, I've had the pleasure of knowing him for five years you've probably known him much longer but every time you're around him everybody that he's around he's always just he's so he's such a, a great servant leader and he's always been so helpful to everybody that everybody in his network just wants to help other people in the network and it's such a you know you talk about integrity you talk about long term like that group of people just exemplify that to me and and so yeah, and that, you know, it's like, it, and you once you're in it, you're kind of vetted too into that group, and it's been, I mean, I, I think it's one of the best networks of of investors and advisors that's out there. You know, really technical 
doers. I love those people. And and Maynard Webb is everything you're describing more, Brian. He's just so amazing. And I love the fact that I've been involved with the web. I probably should have talked about some, but his web network, I'm just so honored to be in there. Because when I see companies like yours and I say, oh, I love this idea. It's a company, you know, small amount of money. They're obviously, you know, vetting it with the network to see if they can get money in. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's how we met. And, uh, I, I, you know, I, I mean, meeting entrepreneurs like yourself who – have a vision for what they're trying to get done. And then in the niche of what they're doing are building great technology. I mean, opening a door for whatever you might need, whether it's a customer or an engineer spending some time with your sales team to help them share some of these lessons, man, that's the best way to give back is to help other people be successful. And even when I'm sharing back, like I said, it's always learning. There's aspects of you don't realize it, but when you have a playbook of what you're doing that's successful, uh, I mean, you will know a lot more about the developer and container and Kubernetes market than I will ever know. So if I can tap a little bit of your brain, I'm just using that as an example, yeah, yeah. it's really to replicate it, but, uh, and how to sell to ISVs. Well, how do you make it appeal to the dev, uh, you know, SecOps pipeline building of these people who are infrastructure developers at these ISVs? So, and then what do I want for your success to be? I mean, I have a vested interest because I'm an investor, but even if I wasn't one and we were friends, I just want you to go up into the right on whatever metric it is, whether it's ARR growth or customer count or employee satisfaction. And, you know, and one day when, you know, let's say you take your company public, man, I knew that guy uh, and they were successful. And that's, I mean, when you mean is that type of person, he just celebrates the success of his entrepreneurs. Yeah. He has this book, like the letters I wrote to founders. Yeah. They're just, that's just, you know, people like that are people who you want on your board, the people you want to get advice on. And they're accessible when you need them, right? I mean, Mayor's always been that way. Hey, Mayor, I need like a half an hour of you to get your advice. It's not like maybe once or twice a year. He makes himself infinitely available if it's an introduction. And, you know, people like that are just, you know, worth their weight in gold. Yeah. And to, you know, kind of the earlier point too, surrounding yourself with people that you actually, you know, really enjoy and you can learn from and you want to work with and and make this like one of those pleasures of your life is, is, the, is the work that we do and how we... Uh, and the impact we can make. So, uh, Sanjay, I know I've, I've had you for a long time here. This has been incredible. Well, I hope it's just not too long for your listeners. I, I've enjoyed every minute of it, and you are a great uh, podcast interviewer, Grant. I just regret that I've been doing a lot of talking. Next time we're going to reverse roles, and I got to interview you. This was too fun. We could do another one where I interview for, for another three hours because there's, there's so many stories you have and so many interesting insights. So, thank you. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.